0: Bible reading today will be taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, and chapter 19, verses 3 to 9. Matthew 5, 27 to 32, 19, 3 to 9. At the end of the reading, I will say, This is the word of the Lord. Please do well to respond by saying, Thanks be to God. I read, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a woman divorced commits adultery. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate.
1: Thank you, Shil, and good, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Nice to see us all here. And in case you are, I don't know if maybe you came in before the introduction was done and you are here for the first time, or you've not been here in a while, uh, please allow me to welcome you uh, to church, and we hope that you'll be blessed today. My name is Femi, and I'm preaching uh, today the fifth part of a sermon series that we have been treating. The name of the sermon series is The Citizens Citizens of the Kingdom. And it's taken from a familiar passage, at least for many Christians, that goes from the book of Matthew from chapter 5 to 7. It's been dubbed the Sermon on the Mount, because between those chapters, Jesus is actually teaching. Why he's teaching is because in the previous chapter, we learned that he not only preaches about his kingdom after he has been commissioned to his ministry, he preaches about his kingdom, but he also demonstrates the power of his kingdom. As a result of this, so many people gather around him. They've seen these things, and you know they're all trying to make up their own minds about what it could be. So to, uh, to avoid any kind of confusion, we see in chapter uh, 1 uh, to 2 that he starts to teach them about the kingdom. And so we've tried to imagine this kingdom, uh, because if you want to know about... Um, maybe the king and a particular kingdom, you can read that from the people that belong to that kingdom. So we've tried to imagine this sermon series as though we're taking a passport book, uh, well, I said passport, international passport that has 14 pages, and each of those 14 pages are identity markers. So the first page, on our first page, we had that the citizens of this kingdom are contrite citizens. The second page is that the citizens of this kingdom are persecuted citizens. The third is that they are missional citizens. The fourth is that they are righteous citizens. And today, we will be looking at them as broken citizens. Now, I don't know about you. I'm sure you don't share this same form of enthusiasm. But I love going to museums, museums where I can find around the world when I have the opportunity. And when you get into these museums, they look so beautiful. They look sparkling. You have all these figurines that are there, you know, the lights are wonderful. Museums at nice. And even our own Nigerian um, National Museum, I don't know if you've been there any time recently, I like another favorite place of mine. Now, it doesn't have the same kind of, um, what can I say, panache or the same kind of, but it still connects us with ideas, with culture, with history. And when you go into museums, some of the things that you find out is that Even though you are learning, if you go into Nigeria zone, there's a part, as some of you know, that talks about all our leaders. And it goes from the old, well, some of the older um, uh, traditional leaders, rulers before we became colonized, then the colonial masters. But the the main um, centerpiece of that part of the museum is what? Is this huge, this long Mercedes-Benz car. Who knows what that car is about? Was where it was the, the car that uh, one of our late head of state was murdered in Murtala Mohammed. He was shot in it. You can see uh, the bullet holes that are there. There are some people that are looking at me. I'm talking about Nigerians here that have absolutely no idea of what I'm talking about. But you've been to the mall right next to the museum. I'll be looking out for you. Go and learn your history. So Murtala Mohammed's car is there. And when you get into museums, you know, that's the thing. You, you talk a lot about dead people. These dead people, whether it's their ideas or it's their legacies. In museums, you—it's almost like you're learning about perfect people, whose ideas and legacies live after them. I hate going to hospitals, right? Now, even some of the best hospitals in the world—and these hospitals—they put children's things. They're so beautiful—the gadgets, you know, the beds, the technology, all of those things. Even the sounds. The nurses are dressed nicely. You know. Well, I don't. Maybe I don't. Don't read that in the wrong way. When I say the nurses are dressed nicely, I mean you know you know the Nigerian ones. You know the Nigerian hospitals, right? The smell of disinfectant. (laughs) Have you ever been to a Nigerian general hospital? Right? Some people are looking at me. What general hospital? Okay. Have you ever been to a Nigerian general hospital? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. And then you have. I mean, the thing that scares me the most, I've said this a number of times here, but I can't stop saying it. The thing that scares me the most is not even the way the hospitals are done, the way the, you know, the lights sometimes, it's just so dark, it looks like a mortuary. It's not that, it's the matron. <laughs> you know those matrons? Yeah. You know when they're coming? You don't you don't even need to hear them talk, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and let's say you have been trying to, let's say you're a kid, that you've been trying to say, I don't want injection, I don't <laughs> want injection. <laughs> they're coming around here. Those women are wicked. I cannot, stand, <laughs> I cannot stand Nigerian hospitals or hospitals anywhere. Because what do you find in hospitals? Most times, hospitals are places where living people are going to die. At worst. At best, it is where sick people are still trying to be made well. If a museum is a place where supposedly we are studying perfect people, though they are dead, in a hospital, we are there looking at sick people trying to be made well. When you think about the citizens of the kingdom, the church, the community of the citizens of the kingdom, do you think museum or do you think hospital? You see, Jesus, in this passage that we learn here, that we're reading here, Jesus teaches us that the church isn't a museum for perfect people. It's a hospital for broken people. And so we find that citizens of the kingdom themselves are broken citizens. Now, exactly what that means, we'll find out if we can consider this sermon under three headings. One, describing brokenness. Two, mending brokenness. And three, solving brokenness brokenness. Describing brokenness, mending brokenness, and then solving brokenness. Now, in the first part, the the one that is in chapter 5, you'll be able to notice two types of broken people. In verse 27 to 30, we can find those we can call the morally broken. And in verses 31 to 32, I'm talking chapter 5 now, verse 31 to 32, you can find what you call Broken victims. So let's take the first one, the morally broken. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been in church long enough, as both a member and a leader in the church, to know that people in church sin. I mean, we just sin. And the person standing in front of you, declaring that, is someone that sins regularly. You see, when Jesus is describing this person that commits adultery, if you notice what he says that this is someone who is committing adultery from his heart. Why? He is looking at someone. The sin of the adultery starts in the heart before it actually comes out into practice. Now, don't get it wrong because you can be a bit confused. Jesus is both describing two sets of people. He's talking about people who are outside the kingdom but look like they are in, you know, they hang around church. Or sometimes people who are inside the kingdom and look like they are outside. Say that again some people are outside but they look like they are in and some people are on the inside and they look that they are they look like they are out and let me tell you straight up it's not always easy to dis- to distinguish between these two people you see one of the things we see because he says that you have been told like in the old testament i remember we're reflecting on the issues of the kingdom in relation to the Old Testament scripture. So when it says that you, in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, this was a commandment in the law, the Ten Commandments in the law, and one of the commandments is, you shall not commit adultery. But what Jesus is trying to say is that, if you just think of adultery, just committing the act, and think, once I don't commit the act, you know, I've heard men that would say, I have been faithful to my wife for 38 years, and it's meant to be some kind of badge of honor. Jesus says, very well, good. But if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. In other words, the place where sin starts from is from within. He's saying that the person who actually has sexual uh, um, um, uh, intimacy, intimacy with someone that is not their wife, yes, has sinned. But those who actually take lustful glances have also sinned as well. Now, you'll be looking at me and you're saying, So are you saying there's adultery in the church? There's no way that person is a Christian. i say the answer is yes and no. Again, remember, Jesus is saying some of them may be outside. But very well also know that some of them may be on the inside. Remember, his, his audience, who is teaching this to, are disciples, and they consisted of both people who were. Inside and outside the kingdom. You see, tragically, guys, and I know this just in the counseling booth, tragically professing Christians, and I would even say some genuine Christians, commit adultery. Christians commit other sexual sins. Christians defraud people in financial transactions. Christians oppress people when they have the power. Christians don't treat their employees well. Am I condoning it? No, it's absolutely bad. Listen to what Jesus says. Now, we can readdress this reality in two different ways. And I'll contend that those two ways are terrible. One is judgmentalism. The other one is laxity. If you are judgmental, you are, that is, you look down with your moral nose upon people. What you are trying to say is that first, I will never commit that kind of sin. I, I, I me. Like Job, I have made the covenant with my eyes that I will not look at a woman lustfully. But when your income, when it's time to pay your income tax, that's when you start justifying. What are they even using the money for self? When Jesus clearly says that you should render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, Paul says you should pay your taxes. Peter says you should pay your taxes, but what are they using the money for? Ah, but thank God I am not like that guy over there that has committed adultery. And also, what you are saying, communicating to these people, is that before you can enter into this king, the kingdom, you need to clean yourself up. When you clean yourself up and let go of all of these things, then you are qualified to enter. Let me tell you what they call that in Christian circles it's called the heresy. Very careful. You don't enter the kingdom by cleaning yourself up. In fact, it is to get cleaned up. Because you want to get cleaned up that you come into the kingdom. Now, another way you can deal with this is through laxity. Which is this. The more we are together, 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 the more we are together, the happier we shall it doesn't really matter how you come in, just stay. The most important thing, is see, because we don't want to oppress you. If we start telling you that you are sinning and you're a sinner, that's going to make you feel bad. And in this kingdom, we don't make people feel bad. We just want to be nice. I mean, what virtue is there to make people feel bad? Why should I tell Toby that he's sinning? Even if I know Toby is sinning. At the end of the day, Toby is going to say, like I know someone that recently they said, when you keep telling me about this, it really hurts, it breaks my heart. So we say, I don't want to be breaking people's hearts. And Jesus says, when you don't do that, when you don't do that, you're helping the person march. Left, right, left, right, left, right, all the way to hell. You see, when we act, when we condone sin... We are ignoring Jesus' warnings right here in the scripture. It says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Guys, gentle Jesus, make a mild, in the New Testament, spoke about hell more than every other person combined. Hell is a reality. So you see, We don't want to either be judgmental, neither do we want to condone. Part of what the kingdom is, is that it's meant to be a kingdom that is pure. So can I say this? If you are in this place today, and you are struggling with sin, please look at me. If you are struggling with sin, can I tell you this? You are welcome here. In fact, we want to have you join us. We love you. We love you enough not to condescendingly judge you, but at the same time, we love you enough not to let you continue sinning either. So I'll say this. If you are struggling with something, the worst thing for you to do is to keep silent about it. Come and talk to us. We want to listen to you. You know why? We too are broken as well. The second kind of broken people are what you can call broken victims. If the first are sinning people, the second are suffering people. If the first are people who are sinning from their hearts, the second are people who are broken in their hearts. They are broken-hearted. Now, contrary to our Lagosian view of Christians, these Christians that must be very, very, we must be super, we must confess, we must do all of these things. You know, we must always look like we've got it together. Some of you are here, you know, man, I am just holding on by the thread right now. You see, in 31, verse 31 here, when Jesus has been said, anyone divorces his wife must not give her a certificate for divorce. Jesus is dealing with the, this, the immediate context here is, that, is the issue of divorce in a patriarchal society. What I mean by that is in a society where women were severely undervalued and they were continuously oppressed. Now for this, for in, for women in this kind of society, actually marriage provided a lot of security for them. But because men knew that the marriage provided security for them, and Moses, in the law of Moses in Ge- Deuteronomy 24, had given an exception for people to be able to get divorced, these men, especially some of the religious guys, um, the religious sects, the Pharisees, were all trying to debate what is the extent to which I can actually, to what extent, what does my wife have to do before I can actually send her away? So that's why if we read in chapter 19, some Pharisees, came, chapter 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and for Every reason. So there was a Pharisee who's, uh, let me tell you, two of them. There was a Pharisee called Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel says that if your wife should break plates in the house, you can divorce her. <laughs> I told you there are also heretics inside the kingdom. <laughs> just, just right there. But wait, you've not even. The, but look, because Rabbi Hillel is just playing. You love Rabbi Akiba. Rabbi Akiba says if you find anybody that is remotely finer than your wife, you can send her away. <laughs> you know, Francis just walked to Ikechi like this, called me my wonderful wife. Ah, Taiwo! <laughs> wow! Ikechi, of divorce. Bye bye! See ya! So you can imagine when you are debating this kind of thing, the women at this point have absolutely no say. So insecure and trust, obviously, these men were actually doing these things. They were actually divorcing them. And as a result of that, as Jesus said, you create victims. Look at verse 32, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife sexually sexual immorality makes her, what, a victim. And to counter this, Jesus then reiterates God's original purpose for marriage. Because marriage was meant to be a union of permanence for the sake of flourishing. The union of one man and one woman permanently for the sake of flourishing. We see that in verse 4 of chapter 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one, no one separate. Verse 8 also says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives um, because your hearts were hard. Now, here's the point. The reason why Jesus goes against, why he quotes that original design from the beginning, was to prevent this kind of no-fault divorce. This culture that was just putting, making a mockery of the union between these people. Because Jesus was concerned about those who were suffering, those who were made victims by no choice of their own. They were made victims because people just had hard hearts. Can I say here, look, citizens of the kingdom suffer. Some of us right now are going through marital and relationship heartbreak right now. Some of us would say to me, Femi, three, four years ago, if you know how well my business was doing, it was prospering, it was just going. Right now, I am struggling to find how I'm going to eat for the, for the rest of the week. Some of us here, maybe last year or this year, have lost loved ones and we still can't get rid of the pain that is there. Or we are suffering because loved ones that we know are terminally ill. Some of us are so lonely. When you check your contact list, the 100 people that are there, 98 of those people, you can't actually call them or they don't call you. Some of us have suffered miscarriages. Some of us are barren. Some of us have been betrayed by the people that we most trust. That is what the reality of the kingdom is. And I say that because Jesus here, unlike so many other people in Christianity, is being real with you. He says, what the kingdom is like? So can I tell you, if you are one of those people, can I also say this, you are welcome here. We want to have you with us. We love you. We love you enough not to let you suffer alone please don't retreat. And when you come, I can tell you this, to speak to us, we will not give you part answers. In fact, sometimes the only thing that we can do is to give you a listening ear or a shoulder to lean on. You know why? Because we are broken too. So what do we do about it? Well, there are two things we can do. The first is that we have to manage the crisis, my second point, mending brokenness. How do we respond? Well, one is manage the crisis. And let's see two of them to these two sets of people. The first one is that it has to be a radical battle if you are the morally broken. Now, if you notice in verse 29, Jesus speaks about gouging out your eye. And in verse 30, he speaks about cutting off your right hand. And he does that because, really, when somebody has committed adultery, the loss first started with his eyes. And the hand is almost like he stole someone. He broke another commandment, which is do not covet your neighbor's wife. So it's almost like you stole something. And so he points to those two things. Now, should that be taken literally? Everybody raise up your right hand. Raise up your right hand. And some of you have not. And some of you, you know, you should cut it off. You are taking literally. (laughs) Now, I think no. There was a, funny enough, there was a, um, a, a, call him a church father, a guy called or, Origen, right? He was, um, I think Origin is it 2nd or 3rd century? I think it's 2nd century Christian. father well, uh, church father, no, I think it's 3rd. Origen actually, because of this verse and because of the temptation that he was, he was going through, he castrated himself. He did. So that he could avoid the temptation. I think he missed the point. Because Jesus said, you sin in your heart. What are you going to do? Take out your heart as well? No, Jesus intentionally speaks in exaggerated forms, in a hyperbole. He wants to make a point, and it's this point. Sin's consequences are deadly serious. So radically deal with it. I know now we're in Lagos, you know, we are suffering the economy and all of those things. It's so bad, nobody likes to talk about hell again. And I, You know, hell, I mean, why should I? I'm not a of hell, I think I should should preach the gospel and if you don't talk about hell and talk about the gospel, your gospel is flat. You know that. Jesus is saying, sin is deadly serious. Don't pamper sin. Don't invite it into your home. Don't feed it and please do not justify it. If only my wife had the man that was counseling who committed adultery recently, and he started by telling me that his wife doesn't really appreciate him. She, she's never appreciated me. He justified it. Jesus at this point is saying, do something radical. Cut the things that make you stumble. Another person that echoes this kind of thought is Paul in Colossians 3. He says, put to death, the King kingdom says, mortify, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Deadly serious stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't the final solution, but this is how you stop the bleeding. That is, you take care of the things, like he said in verse 29 and verse 30, the things that make you stumble. That is, start by confessing. Part of the problem sometimes that we continue in sin over and over is we are so scared of our reputation, we will not go and tell one person. Just tell someone. And not someone that is probably even worse than you are. I'll say, ah, (laughs) my sister. (laughs) Not today. (laughs) You know, these things happen. Please. Tell someone that you know can hold you accountable. There's someone that recently called myself and said, look, I'm in trouble person said, I'm in trouble. This thing has caught me. And if you don't do something about it, it's going to destroy me. That was the person's first, first action out of deliverance. So deal with it. Confess. Don't stay in secrecy. Some of us, please delete that phone number now. <laughs> Install the, anti-soft porn, uh, the anti-porn software let somebody else also look at your finances and how the money is going so that you don't defraud someone. Only meet that person in public. (laughs) In public. Because gouging out your right eye or yanking off your right hand is the first, even though it's not the only step, but it's the first step coming out of sin. Now, for the broken victims... You know, I have to be honest with you, sometimes the suffering that you're going through, there are no quick fixes. And you know this because you've tried all the quick fixes, haven't you? And they've disappointed you. You've confessed. You've gone for the prophetic meetings. They've laid hands on you. You've rolled on the floor. You have sown. You have prayed for eight hours. All of these things and nothing has worked. Why? Because sometimes there are no quick fixes. Now, take marriage, because that's the context that uh, uh, we see in this part. Take marriage, for instance. Marriage was meant to be the deepest and most ho- holistic union between a man and a woman, which enables security, safety, and flourishing of both the individuals, their family members, their immediate family, and the society at large. That's what marriage was meant to do. At the heart of marriage, was meant to be a union. Remember what it says? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They are no longer two, but one flesh. It was meant to be. The Bible has a very lofty view of marriage. And yet, Jesus allows for his dissolution in divorce. He allows for it. As lofty as it is, he says, except for sexual immorality. And why does he do that? Even though we can quote the Malachi 1 and 2 part, where God hates divorce. Yes. But Jesus allows for it. Why does he do it? And we see it in verse 8. He permitted it because of the hardness of heart. What does that mean? What does that mean? The hardness of heart, basically saying that one or both parties in the marriage have come to certain places where they act in ways consistently, that actually does not enable marriage to fulfill what marriage was set up for. Now, let me say that this isn't the only place that the Bible speaks about divorce. This is one. So I'm going to give you three reasons why sometimes the only protection that somebody can have because of their suffering is also a tragic one. Because notice, divorce is always a tragedy. But sometimes it is a protective tragedy. Divorce is always a tragedy, but sometimes it is the tragedy that some people must take to avoid another worse tragedy. So there are three reasons. Three A's. One, adultery. Two, abandonment. And three, abuse. So adultery. When someone commits adultery, basically what you have done is that this thing, this heart of the marriage, which is union, you've now started sharing it sexually with someone else, emotionally with someone else, and therefore you are breaking it spiritually as well. In fact, you are almost creating a pseudo-union with someone on the outside. That is why Jesus says it can be broken, because this person has already broken it. Accepting it in the legal realm is basically what has been broken emotionally, sexually, spiritually. And he's saying this can happen if you have another partner that continues in this, unrepentant, and he doesn't want or she doesn't want to actually stop what they're doing. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, Paul says this concerning number two. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. In verse 27, it says, Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. But are you free from such a commitment? That is, someone that was in a commitment of marriage before now is free. They've been divorced. Why? For the reason of abandonment. When it says that the man and the woman should be one flesh, this one flesh union is a unity of every, It's a holistic unity. Let me say that includes geographical unity. And I say this as a word of caution, whilst I know that there are no quick fixes. But sometimes, I see some people, you want to get married. They are getting married, everything, but when they want to ask for her career, his career, if they move him to Australia and they move her to, I don't know, to Argentina, they say, well, work it out. Why? Because they presume that maybe they see each other once every two months. They have sexual intimacy, yeah, so we've done the one flesh. No, it includes geographical unity. Now I understand. Don't look, yeah, sometimes I have to work two weeks outside here. Yeah? I am not saying there are not ways we can work it out, but I'm saying don't think that should be a sustainable measure. Yeah. There are many things that you cannot program just by talking on Skype or trying to quickly do within you know, the weekend. We, we'll, we'll catch up. There is a, unit, there's a unity there, a united reality there that has not been expressed that doesn't enable you guys to knit each other together. Now, imagine this. If that is the reality for people who are even happy together, somebody just gets up and says, you know, I, I, I don't know, he just leaves. Where is he? I don't know. I have relatives that have done that. Some we're still waiting for since 1993. Just leave. Do you know what that is? You are breaking the union, not just geographically, but you're also breaking the union relationally. At the heart of this, also, is friendship, of this unity. How can you have friendship with somebody that you cannot relate to? You tell me, some of us will say, we are still friends with people that were in secondary school because we were borders, right? What do you have with the reality of being a border? Is that both of you? are in the same geographical space for a long time, and so you relate because you are in the same geographical space. So this person just gets up, goes, and we don't know where he is. He breaks a relational unity, emotional unity as well. It's a cowardly act. That only thinks, when you, feel, you say, I, you don't understand, I, I couldn't deal with it, I needed my space. Quite tragically, most it's men that usually do this. If you are looking for personal space, sorry, you are not looking to get married. <laughs> I mean, by definition, marriage is giving up of your personal space. I, I hope you understand that. Yeah. You no longer have two bedsheets. Uh, you have two, It's not two bedsheets. It's one bedsheet, one duvet, one tugs it at the right, the other one tugs it at the left, and both of them behaving as though they, they didn't really know what happened. <laughs> I'm sleeping. You know. You know. Bola, you know it. Where, Kemi, where you find it. You give that up, and I, now you now come to a point where you just feel, no, 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 this is, she's cramping up my style. I, I, I don't want anybody to change me. I don't. No, then you're not ready to be married. Amen. But what is tragic is if you've already started forming that unity, and you just say you just want to get up and just go. Yeah. And I know some people that have done that and then come back three, four years after. They just want to start up where we left off. Wow. You amputated yourself from this union, and you think you just want to push. again. Paul says that's an exception. I'll give you a third one. And in that third one, some people see it as controversial. I haven't dealt with so many marriages and listened to people's testimonies. And nowadays, I do not see it as in any way controversial. And that's abuse. Now, let me explain. It's controversial because people say there is no explicit text for it. Right? Well, yes, I understand. There is no explicit text for it. Look, if everything we said uh, as Christians that we believed in, we look for explicit text. Well, you cannot oppose abortion. You know that. If you are looking for an explicit text, show me where's abortion in the Bible that you must not commit. You must not commit abortion. Show me where the Bible says you cannot watch internet porn. Sometimes we look at the teaching, the principle, the theology of the Bible, and then we act and say, how true and consistent is this with this teaching? on it? Because abuse, you are dealing with issues of safety, psychological health, emotional health. Some people, where your home is meant to be your haven, some people, their homes are the most dangerous places for them to be in. There are some people when they get to work, you're like, ah. when they look at the time, you start to go home, they start shaking. Yeah. Because that is the place where they are thoroughly abused, whether it's physically, emotionally, all over. They keep just getting, being barraged with torment and torment and torment. Bullied, demeaned, condemned. Listen to what one ethicist called David She says. He said, one cannot find a biblical text in which burning a child or a wife on the arm with a cigarette or throwing them down throwing them down the stairs or banging their heads against the wall or enlisting them in a murder plot is listed for grounds of divorce. Such actions, however, constitute a fundamental assault on the meaning of the marriage covenant. Which then forces the theologian, Krikina, to then say, given the usual pattern of physical, and I add psychological and emotional abuse, in which, abusive, in which the abusive spouse periodically apologizes or excuses the behavior, but without that commitment to serious counseling does not change. I believe that God would hold us responsible to accept a pattern of abuse as grounds for a divorce. Don't forget, the reason why he left his father and mother, and she left her father and mother, is for both of them to be what? United. And when they are united, they can flourish. And when they can flourish, they can go on mission together. God said he created them male and female and he told them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, have dominion. There was a commission that was given to them. That commission never happens when people are repeatedly being abused and the union is broken emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Do you understand that? The principle of marriage then is forfeited. Now, divorce is a nuclear option. You have to know that. I'm not saying that you jump from uh, my husband doesn't make me feel good. Sometimes you yourself, you are too needy. That's a problem. I'm not saying you jump from that and all of a sudden we start saying divorce. There are people that I know, even one or two people in this church. Before they got to that, it took them time. I will look at it and I will even say, Ah man, man, this is awful. How are you standing this? And the person is still trying. Maybe he'll come around. Maybe she'll come around. Maybe if we go for counseling. And for two, three years begging to go for counseling and the person is okay unrepentant I finished this with my friend Kike the name has been changed but Kike was when I met her a couple of years ago she was trying to work through a divorce or thinking through she had married for 10 years the person that she married was a spiricoco guy but after a while things just started changing. Started coming home late. Started not sleeping at home. Eventually started finding out that he was sleeping around. Eventually, he will come and won't do it again, blah, blah. Some days, his, his fury was, it now started exploding until he started to hit her. But of course, when he hit her, what did he do? I'm really, really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. Obviously, he was scared that people at church. But he would do it again. And again. Until he left. He left. She didn't know where he went. For months, and then he came back. He promised that he would change. He would do everything. And now he went to start a business. He took all of her savings, put it in something that was a scam, and eventually finished all her money. This was somebody that was prospering. And eventually he committed the adulteries. He continued, and he left again. It got so bad, she was committed to a mental institution for one month. And so she eventually came out. And it came out and it church, I'm getting a divorce. I told the church I'm getting a divorce. And the church said, uh, you shouldn't because God hates divorce. What? Don't you understand? I am not saying that this solves the issue of a marriage. But Jesus says, except there is a reason that there's an exception that comes. Because sometimes the tragedy is worse if they stayed in. And so he gives another tragedy because of the hardness of heart so that those people can be protected. The Bible never tells us to celebrate a divorce, ever. Because it is breaking of something that God wanted to be permanent to enable flourishing. But at the same time, when that which was meant uh, to be for flourishing is then turned around and is bringing about the destruction of someone else, let me tell you something. God, God values life over marriage. And that's why Jesus sometimes can say, yes. There are certain things that are in the law that are important. You should do all of them. But he says also, there are certain things that are the weightier matters of what? The law. And so that's why for sufferers, sometimes you don't have an immediate solution. All that you have is something that can enable you to get to the next day and to the next day if you're here and you're suffering under some kind of debilitating emotional or maybe physical or maybe financial trauma, all I can say is that sometimes all we can give you is palliative care. Not quick fixes. But those things that start to mend you, though they are not a cure, it is amending that is waiting for the final solution the final solution. What is that third point? Solving brokenness. Now, this solution is going to work. It works out in two ways. How God responds to this morally broken and broken victims. It works out in two ways. One is relating and restoring. One, relating God relating and God restoring. Now, you're probably one, you say something like this. Well, Femi, okay, I get it. All right, city church, you guys seem, at least from what you're saying, like, okay, you, you won't judge me. You'll accept me, you know, despite the fact that I have this sin issue. Or you'll actually want to look after me. You are, I can see that you want to identify with me. But here is the most important thing. Because I'm not sure about this whole Christianity thing. And you're telling me to become a Christian. Can you tell me that the God of Christianity can identify with me? Maybe you're asking that question. Because I tell you, what I am sinning, my sin today. And I don't even know whether I'm not going to sin tomorrow. It's really bad. And from what I know, this God is morally perfect. Will he accept me? You are broken, yeah, I understand, so you should accept me. But will he accept me? Or you're saying he identifies with me. If he identifies with me, does he really care because I am suffering this thing and it is horrible? I often think that God doesn't care. Or God can't relate with the kind of suffering. Just think, if you, are, if you are one of those people in that kind of divorce. Jeremiah 3 verse 8 tells you something about God. He said, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Just even in that context, God knows exactly what it is to have an unfaithful spouse. It's not that God divorced Israel because he wanted to. But it's because his people rejected him. It even happened so much that when God came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ, the Bible said, he came to his own, but his own, what? Did not receive him. They rejected him. He said, but what about my sin? Yes, you guys are sinners too. You can empathize. But my sin is awful. And this God hasn't sinned. Well, you are correct. He hasn't sinned. But you see, the rejection of God, of Jesus Christ, continued and continued up until it took him to his own costly death. And say, so, well, everybody dies. No, it wasn't just an ordinary death. You remember what he said. He said, don't do this. Cast out your eye. Gouge it out and cut off your right hand. Because if you don't do that, you'll go to hell, isn't it? On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus bore the consequences of your sin as though you were in hell. You want to talk about someone identifying with your sin? He took the punishment of your sin, if you would trust in him. You want to talk about someone identifying with your pain? There is no pain that anyone has ever suffered more than Jesus on the cross. Jesus identifies with you in your sin and in your pain because he's on the cross. And what you need to do is that any time that question comes into your mind, I said he will never want to have anything to me. Look to the with me. Look to the cross because the cross says that the fact that you say Jesus doesn't care for you is a pit from hell that you should reject. Because of the cross, Jesus, uh, Paul can quote the prophet by saying, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. If anyone looks at you and says you are not qualified to be a Christian, that is your very qualification. Because whether in your pain or in your sin, just like the hymn writer says, Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, and that thou bid me come to thee, O oh, Lamb of God, I come. Will you come? Because Jesus makes a promise. Anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise, what? Cast out. Don't allow your sin to stop you from coming. But don't also allow your suffering to make you feel like he never really cared for me. Look to the cross yeah. where he identified with you, but also did something about your pain and your, yeah. your, pain and your suffering. Or so you say, okay, I think I'm getting it now. But there's still a problem. Would this stop me from sinning? Because after all, God did divorce people for sinning, perhaps. That's why I'm still suffering, because of my sins. And maybe I think of this example. When I was growing up, now we don't do it again, because our children are also spoiled. But when we were growing up, all of, a lot of you know, right? Your parents bought these figurines, this ceramic porcelain uh, china. They, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Ceramic stuff. Maybe, okay, there's some age dynamic going on here. I don't know. But there were these decorations, right? These things that were, like, made out of clay, but, you know, nice figurines. And they used to, they could break, right? Now, I, 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 I'm saying it really. They used to buy a lot of those things because the children were not like my children. If you come to my sitting room, we have five chairs set in, and we have one carpet in the middle, and that's it. I'm not putting any other thing because those guys will break everything. But well, back in those days, they put a lot of those stuff. And I remember my mom used to say, if any of you should break this thing in your back, she would say that I will use the cleaner, uh, I'll use it to make tribal marks for you. <laughs> but sometimes they did break. And we had that famous thing called Evo Stick. Yeah, you know Evo stick. How be you to sniff it? <laughs> but let's leave that one. And you get a stick, and if it broke, what would you do? You get all the broken pieces and you mend it together. And when you mend it together, what are you trying to do? You're trying to take it back to what it was like at the beginning, isn't it? You're trying to take it back to what it was like at the beginning. But well, you know it's not always really like that. Because somebody, they look well, and you didn't put an and it was quite brown. So you will be able to see, ah, oh, this thing was once broken. And sometimes the mending that we are trying to do, is that we are trying to put things back together. But we know it's not really the same thing, is it? If you've been divorced before and you are trying to come back again, it's never really the same. You can't have it like it was at the beginning. And so Jesus says, that's why in verse 8 of chapter 19, he said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. And the question you're asking me is that, Okay, fine, this bad thing has happened, but can I get it back to what was like at the beginning? Because that would not just be mending. I don't just want to be mended. I want restoration. Is there a way I can have the beginning again? And I'll tell you this, you cannot have the beginning, but you can have a new beginning. Yeah. Yeah. If you read down in verse nine, chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus talks about what in Greek is called the panangentia, the renewal of all things. And Jesus... Later in chapter 22, was asked a question by another sect, not the Pharisees, but this time these guys were called the Sadducees. And they didn't believe in what you call the resurrection. So they asked him a couple of questions. If a man marries a woman and the man dies, and then her brother marries, his brother marries her, that one too dies, the next brother marries her, blah, blah, all of that. When this resurrection that you people are talking about, when it happens, who will be her husband then. And Jesus answered this question. Matthew 22 verse 30. At the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. What is Jesus saying? Listen to me. Marriage itself, as important as it is, does not cross into the eternal age. In other words, marriage itself has a temporal reason for existing. Marriage between humans. Why? Why? What is that temporary reason for, ex- uh, for existing? Marriage in this world is pointing to marriage in the other world, which is not between any two human beings. It's between God and his people. Yes. So if you feel that I have my marriage broken today, or is there anything I can look forward for in the beginning? I can tell you this. You have a new beginning. And the new beginning is always better than the former. In the resurrection, Jesus is saying, when you look at somebody and say, he's a shadow of his old self. Jesus is saying that he's going to exceed his old self. Paul said that the glory, uh, sorry, the prophet said the glory of this latter house shall exceed that of the former. When the Lord comes back to meet his people. If you are suffering in this world, in the renewal of all things, even as we give palliative care and love and community in this place, if you feel it cannot be mended, don't worry. Jesus promises us that when he returns again, all things shall be made new. He said in that time, there will be no crying, there will be no tears, there will be no pain because all things have passed away and now all things have been made new say, but what about my sin? I'm still struggling with it. Don't you get what the resurrection is? Part of the reason why you continue to sin is that though you have Jesus with you, though you have the Holy Spirit, your body has not been adopted. A resurrection means that you have a new body such that you will not sin. Why? Because you cannot sin. Therefore, Jesus says, though we are broken down, And though he mends us now with real love and with real care in the penitentiary, in the renewal of all things, those broken citizens will be fully restored citizens. Can we say an amen to that? Oh, what a day that would be like. Let us pray. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, he told us in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We commit our sin to you. We commit, Lord God Almighty, that which we are struggling with. We ask, O Lord, that you come. Help us. Help us with our accountability. Help us with the spirit that lives in us. Help us, Lord God Almighty, with all our... Bible study and all the things that you've given to stop us from doing all these things, help us, oh God, by the Spirit that so powerfully works within us to break all the chains of sin in our lives. And Lord, for those who are so tender hearted now, for those, oh Lord, who have had their hearts broken, for those among us, Lord, who are suffering in one thing or the other, looking for when. You will be able to answer them. They've waited for a month. They've waited for six months. They've waited for two years. And Lord, they need you. Father, we ask that you be near them. Answer them. But we also ask this, Lord, as we are so tempted not to do in this day, to look for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to be inspired by your promises, to fight the good fight of faith, and to suffer as Christ did. Because we know that when he returns all things will be made new. We ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.